shot that we got. All right? We're going to run the picket fence at them. Now, boys, don't get caught watching the paint dry. Alright, and hello, 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 and welcome back to the Picket Fence Podcast. My name is Derek Early. And I'm Kim Smith. We're the host of the brand new Picket Fence Podcast, a basketball podcast with an Indiana focus. Each week we're going to bring you discussions on current affairs in the basketball world across high school, college, the NBA, and beyond. Also each week we will discuss and break down a topic related to basketball in the state of Indiana or expand to other Hoops-related discussions. And this week, we're going to be recapping the NCAA Final Four Championship game, as well as the semifinals. And in honor of the Final Four, Cam and I will both be discussing and giving our top five favorite college basketball players of all time. We will, be, we will also be discussing the current rise in open head coaching positions around the state. What jobs are open and what programs have great potential? We will be breaking down all of that this week. Don't forget to check out the Picket Fence Podcast on social media at Picket Fence underscore pod on Twitter and the Picket Fence Podcast on Instagram for weekly updates on the podcast and to vote this week on your favorite uh, list of top five college basketball players and to list your favorite as well. Look for the Picket Fence Podcast on YouTube. Like and subscribe to check out our upcoming videos and updates. After the break, we'll be right back. We're going to be discussing Indiana high school coaching jobs from around the state. All right, and here we are on the Picket Fence Podcast, episode two, coming at you live. Uh, Cam, one of the things that we were discussing or kind of failed to discuss last week was our background kind of and where we come from as far as teaching and coaching and basketball and why we're interested in all this. so I thought maybe we could get into that a little bit this week. Um, I know we both have similar but yet different uh, backgrounds when it comes to the sport. So for me, as far as That's I go, uh, my love for the game started, gosh, when I was probably four or five years old. I can, I can remember seeing pictures of me having a ball in my hands, um, always had a hoop around, whether it was in the house or outside in the driveway. Uh, right. So starting in, in second grade, got into the park and rec leagues, here in town, uh, played that up until we could play for the middle school teams, and then played all the way through high school, uh, varsity as a junior and senior. And once I graduated, really didn't necessarily ever envision myself getting into coaching. Uh, had a little bit of a, a taste of it, some experience, because in high school we ran the Little Lions Leagues, so we had our youth development program that was ran through our high school program, and as players we got to coach the teams. So that was kind of my first little introduction to coaching and and enjoyed it, had a good time with it. Uh, But going into my senior year, my plans were to go into some sort of business degree, do some sports marketing. Uh, Always had ambitions of, you know, trying to work for the Pacers or somebody like that. And uh, got into freshman year of college and my cousins were younger than me and they played sports. And at one of their games, I had... uh, a parent asked if I would be interested in doing a, a fifth grade AAU team, just travel team, take some kids from uh, our elementary school and play tournaments and, and just kind of get the experience. And they needed a coach. And I offered to do it and said, absolutely. And started that and loved it. Uh, right. Did not necessarily have some early success, um, <laughs> but we, we played enough tournaments over the course of that winter and practiced enough that we went from – struggling to get the ball in the hole, 
to being ranked fifth in the state. Um, winning one of the Gym Rats regionals, and we actually qualified to go to Fort Wayne to go play in the state final. So that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Went up there, and I think we went 500, but we got knocked out on the last day of the tournament. We lost a, a Carmel team up there. And, of course, for our fifth grade team, it was basically the 11 kids that their parents could get them to practice, right? So I'm talking to the, Car- the Carmel coach before the game, and he's asking me about kind of our system and our program, and I'm asking him about his, and he goes, well, we had 75 kids try out for our team. I said, you had how many? And he goes, yeah, we had 75 kids, and these are the, the 12 that we picked. I go, well, these are the 11 whose parents can get them to practice. Uh, but, I mean, knock on wood, all things considered, I'd had a great 11 kids that year. Uh, yeah. Had some that were pretty talented. And had some success in high school, so it was a it was a fun experience, and that's kind of what got me off and running um, with wanting to be a coach. Um, so following that year, um, going into my sophomore year of college, I worked with the high school program as a volunteer assistant, um, and then from there decided um, that going back to the middle school and kind of running some of those programs was a, a good move. So worked with the high school program for that year, and then transitioned over into coaching sixth grade. Uh, and then from there I moved up. So I've coached the fifth grade AAU. I've done sixth grade for a number of years. I coached seventh grade for, uh, gosh, three years. I did three years of seventh grade and then moved up into the varsity assistant role. So, um, short of, of coaching eighth grade, I was the eighth grade assistant, I guess, so to speak, um, for those three years, but I've seen from fifth grade up through varsity, um, but all said and done, I've got 12 years of coaching under my belt and have thoroughly enjoyed every single bit of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to kind of follow up some of those, who have been some of your coaching mentors just um, in your career? Uh, played high school ball for um, Hank Whedon. Um, he was at Salem, coached for, I believe it was, he was either here for 18 years or 20 years, I can't remember. Uh, but he came in, his first year was my eighth grade year. Um was my high school coach all four years and then just retired back in 2018. Um, and then as far as working at the varsity level, um, I was my first two years at the varsity level, I worked with uh, Mike Brown, who yeah. is an Indiana Hall of Famer, or future Indiana Hall of Famer, um, has won 500 games, um, yeah, has been to a state finals, has won multiple sectionals, multiple regionals, um, and has kind of – seen it all as far as Indiana basketball. So getting a chance to to, absolutely to play for to play and work for and with Coach Whedon, um, being the all time winningest coach in Salem history, and then getting a chance to kind of see the game alongside someone like Mike Brown. It was really, really entertaining. It was kinda it was a privilege for sure. Um to be with somebody who has the the basketball mind that that he does. It was really fun and I, I learned a lot from from him and from both of them, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, just thinking about just stories that you know you've told me, and, and to kind of give some background to to listeners here, Derek and I are both Southern Indiana guys. Uh, Derek, you uh, graduated from Salem and done your coaching in Salem. I graduated from North Harrison High School, um, and I've kind of bounced around to some uh, schools here in Southern Indiana. But um, yeah, I mean, you've told me some stories about you know working with Coach Brown and you know just the stuff you picked up and learned from him. I mean, even just the little things like that you told me just day-to-day stuff with Brown just, you know, expands your knowledge and uh, all the time. Yeah. And it's, 
just little tidbits that you don't really think you're ever going to get, but just sitting in the office and being able to talk to some of those guys, um, obviously not having the 15, 20 in, you know, coach Brown's case, 30 plus years of experience being on the sidelines like that, you know, there's just, there's things that as a young coach, you don't really even think of or haven't thought of yet that is everyday common practice for somebody with with that kind of experience. And it's just neat being able to hear the different perspectives and the things that they, that they see when you've got that much time leading a program, you know, the things that you pick up during a game that the average person does not see, Um, you know, and being able to make those, the, the small adjustments, being able to, to call a timeout, you know, late in the fourth quarter, because you've seen something that the other team is doing defensively, that you can expose and take advantage yeah. of, uh, yeah. you know, that the average person in the stands is just watching the game and has no idea uh, of the finer parts of the game as a coach that you're paying attention to. And yeah. it was just really cool seeing the stuff that he ran, uh, you know, how he was able to utilize mismatches uh, yeah. and the, the end of quarter, end of game stuff that both, Brown and Whedon use it was just it was really nice to be around I am thankful for what I was able to learn from those guys for sure yeah absolutely but you've had a you've had a pretty good uh, run this last year for sure and then uh, the time that you've spent you've had some success at the JV level yeah for sure being able to kind of lead your own team which I think is is always nice you know being able to not only be at the to work at the varsity level and to assist in that regard, but also getting the experience to be on the sideline and coach your own team too, um, has got to be has got to be a good thing for you. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, this is uh, my I just finished up my fifth year um, at, at coaching here in, in Southern Indiana. Uh, my fifth year as an assistant, I've coached freshman ball, JV ball, varsity assistant. Um, this year, I was varsity assistant. JV head coach and freshman coach, um, all at the program here at Corden Central. Um, this is my first year at Corden Central, and I work uh, under currently under Coach uh, Joseph Hinton, and we're coming off a twenty and six season, um, which is you know tremendous. It's the tied the most wins in, in school history um, for the boys program there, and that has been tremendous. And we talk about having great mentors. I'm going to get into that in a minute, but um, working for Joseph Hinton and then having uh, his dad Joe Hinton, who's won you know almost six hundred games and the Hall of Fame coach. Getting to listen to him on the sideline and, and just talk to him day to day has been has expanded my knowledge, you know, like uh, vastly to, to listen to a guy like that. So uh, that's been really good. So to kind of give some background, uh, just like you said, I really always wanted to be a basketball coach. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of junior high, I think, is really when it started. Um, and I don't really know why I just really got into basketball at that time. I know um, I fell in love watching the NBA um, when I started watching Kobe Bryant, and that really gave me the kind of the inspiration to just love and watch basketball like that at that level. Um, and then just being in the gym and, and working with guys that, you know, when we were in junior high, I just kind of loved watching it on the sideline and t- to be a little self-deprecating here, <laughs> mostly, no, mostly cause I was sitting on the sideline. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I just being able to watch it and then, and then just, you know, think the game. So it's, it's really funny. Like, like probably seventh grade, I think was really when I kind of got the ideas of really wanting to do that. Um, uh, there, there used to be these things that you would get from the library called like choose your own adventure books. Have you ever heard of that? Where like you go to flip to a certain page to go to a certain avenue yeah. in this adventure. So they had a series of these books that were really old, really, really old. Um, 
that were kind of like that, but like a coach. So it would give you a situation from a game that had happened, college or NBA. Okay. And so it would give you a list of choices. Make the call. Would you call a timeout here? Would you run this? Would you? And so you would read, you'd make your choice, and then turn and see what happened. Would you have made the right call in that situation? Okay. Did you make the same call that coach made? And so reading that was really interesting because at that time, I didn't necessarily think of the game in that way. And I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of different outcomes. You know, as a kid, you just kind of get told the play you're supposed to yeah. run by your coach in junior high. And, you know, you, you just practice the fundamentals up to that point. And so I really hadn't thought about the game being almost a chess match in that way. And so, you know, I remember I got in trouble in um, Mrs. Walton, seventh grade soul studies class. Shout out to Mrs. Walton <laughs> at North Harris Middle School because I'm drawing – plays on my assignment book or we're taking notes and you know i'm drawing you know plays and trying to understand like hey how, you know what is, what does a good play in a basketball game look like but you know why are you doing certain things and things aren't arbitrary like i would have thought the game would be um yeah. until you start thinking that way so um from there that really inspired me. and getting into high school that that next year in eighth grade butler makes their run to um the final four yeah my eighth grade year and watching brad stevens and reading about him at that time and hearing like how he's just all about the strategy and preparation and what he does for his team and hearing that he's the most prepared coach and hearing that, you know, they've got all these kind of advanced things that they're doing in their program um, and doing it with, you know, Indiana kids that, you know, maybe flew under the radar for right. other programs. Um, I fell in love with his program and fell in love with one. And then since then, since, you know, learning about that then and then watching those teams, I mean, he was really the inspiration for why I wanted to, to do that. Um, I, I first started getting a coach, um, at Eastern uh, High School in uh, Pekin, Indiana, and I want to shout out Michael Gillum for giving me a shot there. They had all he's brand new coach, and they had, um, you know, their staff filled, and so I just went to him when I got hired and said, "Look, I'll, I'll you know do whatever I can to get on staff. I'll volunteer." Um, and so he gave me a volunteer spot, and I was just the shooting coach. I started, you know, did some fall workouts with kids, did you know a lot of offensive fundamentals. Um, we. You know, we I, I started like shooting groups in the morning, uh, before school and after school. Uh, you know, just whatever I could do. And there ended up being a guy who moved out of the freshman position, and so I, I got to take over and be that freshman coach. And since nice. then, I've done you know, you know, freshman ball and uh, JV ball there, and then uh, bounced around a couple of schools. We actually worked together. So Derek and I worked together yeah. in Salem for a year. Um, Derek being the varsity assistant, I was a JV coach, and uh, so that's kind of how our relationship started in coaching was uh, crossing paths at, at Salem, and you know, a lot of two, three-hour phone calls talking about <laughs> game film and, and game prep and coming up with some strategies uh, that were – that was a lot of fun getting to, to have those, you know, phone calls and, uh, you know, kind of embracing our love of the game yeah. there that year for sure. But, um, you know, you talk about the – what you learned from Coach Brown uh, being on the sideline with him and just day-to-day. Being with Joe Hinton on the sideline this year and then, you know, looking at going into the next season as well, but – being on the sideline with him and just hearing the little things he throws out during the game is unbelievable. To be coaching since the late 60s until now, the man <laughs> can tell possessions that happened 30 years ago. Yeah, You know, if I bring up a sectional game that happened in the 70s or 80s, if it went well, he can tell me why. If it didn't go well, he's frustrated and still thinks about <laughs> what he should have done or what the other team did or whether or not it was a bad call, and he can tell me possession by possession. You know, after JV games this year, I would go right to him. As soon as the game's over, we talk to the team. I go and sit right next to him, and he's going over things. In the second quarter, you know, at such and such time in, in this quarter, you did this, and he's asking me why. Or, 
hey, I, I think you should look at this next time. He's telling me like specific possession things and he's seen everything on the court. So getting a guy like that with that experience and that resume and that knowledge of the game has been, um, I mean, nothing but beneficial. It's been outstanding. And I know you feel the same way about working with Coach Brown. Um, we haven't had, you know, you know, years and years on the sideline experience like they have, but to have, you know, to, to, to work under those two guys, I think has been something that you and I both really value. And it's invaluable to me to have worked with yeah. Coach Hinton. This yeah. And the cool thing is too, like, especially with guys like Coach Hinton and Coach Brown, you, you sit there and you talk to them and it's not like they're completely reinventing the wheel or talking about things that sound like, you know, astrophysics or anything to yeah. you. Like, it's just, yeah. it's those little bitty, like almost having a conversation with like your dad or your grandpa or something. And it's those little bitty tidbits of just knowledge that they just kind of embed in you that it's like, Oh, I've never thought of that. And yeah, then I they make think- you feel stupid yeah, because no. it's like, I don't know why I've never picked this up or observed this in the game before or where I was looking or why I didn't notice that. But it's certainly great to be able to have those conversations because they're able to kind of change the way you think about watching the game. And I know just in the, the year that you and I have worked together and then, you know, the, the two years since that we've had plenty of conversations about basketball and film sure. and breaking stuff down in players and teams. But, uh, you know, I, I went from a mindset of my first couple of years at the, var- at the varsity level of watching film, breaking it down, being diligent, trying to figure out tendencies and things like that, and then being able to work with you where you brought the analytical side of things in. And, you know, obviously film doesn't lie, but when you're bringing in stats and information and charts and stuff like that 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 you love, you know, that aspect is is you go crazy on that stuff. And so that brought a whole new perspective for me going into preparation and practice and games. and you helped kind of reshape the way that I went about, you know, sure. wanting to coach and plan things and look at building a program around too. So I thought that was, that was awesome. So, I mean, we can talk about being around people that have had 30 and 40 years, you know, in the game, but also just in the short amount of time that you and I have had as far as, as coaching and being in it, you know, there's always to me something to be learned from everybody. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's one of the reasons we, you know, kind of, we're here doing this podcast and why we're, we're telling you guys about this is, you know, we had these conversations even when not being on staff to get like different staff together conversations back and forth, you know, me throwing a question at you. I mean, if I've got a question with an upcoming team, you know, you're the first text, you're the first call, we're going back and forth. And so we bring this knowledge of, Hey, you've learned from coach Brown. Hey, I'm learning from coach Hinton. And then what our own perspectives are. Right. Um, and I think, that's, you know, what's just, that's the most fun thing about coaching to me is just you're, you're, if you're constantly learning, if you go into it thinking you have it all figured out, you're done. And yeah. even if you have the experience, you've not figured it out. It's, yeah. it's always new. It's always requires preparation. And, you know, that's why, you know, like I said, you're the first text or the first call. Hey, hey, what are we doing breaking this down here? Um, and to, to reiterate what you're saying about those coaches where it's like they, they give you the answer you didn't expect. <laughs> yeah. It's always it, – it always seems simple, and it's because yeah. they can – it. And they're teachers, man. I mean, that's what hitting is – when I watch when I watch him talk about the game, he is first and foremost, man, he's a teacher of it. Yeah. And it's never complex. What's going through his mind is complex for sure. Oh yeah. Every, 
but he can give you the simple answer for it. And you're like, oh, of course. Why didn't I just come to you and ask right off the bat? You know? Yeah, the, the coaches to me that are the, are the best, and we can get into that conversation in a, in a later episode. I'm sure we'll talk about our, our favorite coaches and all-time stuff. Uh, but as far as who I've been around and then you know going to clinics and listening to people talk and break stuff down on their own, my perception and my impression of the, the best coaches – are the ones who can take those complex concepts, those complex ideas, and simplify them so everybody understands it. And yeah, if you're putting yourself in a position with a program and with a team that, as a coach, if you can't explain it, yeah. like That's you're it. talking to a four-year-old yeah. and break it down and make it that simple, then you don't need to be coaching it. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. And I think people want to get, a lot of times, and I don't know that it's not, I don't think it's an Indiana problem because I will put Indiana high school basketball up against any other state in the country and any other programs in the country um, because I think it's the best coaches around. But uh, you have the the few that I think want to get cute with stuff, right? And talk about the sets that they run, the drills they run in practice, and how intricate and detailed and, all that stuff, and it's all fine. Like, bells and whistles are great. Right. But can you actually coach it? You know, or yeah. is it all just to build up for show? And are your kids actually getting anything out of the the glitz and glamour part of it? You know, or could you simplify things a little bit and get a lot more work put in? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what, you know, I know you've learned from Coach Brown, and you've learned your experience with Coach Whedon, and what I've learned from my uh, – you know, experience with Joe Hinton and, and the current head coach that I work under, his son Joseph Hinton, it's all simple. How much do you teach it? How can you teach it? And, you know, is it relevant to your players? And right. That's exactly it. And we've been um, lucky, too, around here on this side of things as far as um, coaching and working at Salem, where our, our girls' program has been highly successful um, yeah. the last few years. Oh. And so getting a chance to, to not only, you know, know Coach Hickey and, and those guys – that work with their program, but also, you know, being right across the gym from them, right across the hallway in there. And so always being able to pop in and ask questions and, uh, you know, talk to coach Hickey, talk to coach Tomlinson. Uh, gosh, who's one of the, I think he's a hall. He's an Alabama high school, all of famer. Uh, he's a, a wow. Lipscomb university hall of famer. He was an all American, uh, wow. had a, actually had an NBA tryout with the Utah jazz. So having a brain like that, in that office too. Yeah. Um, Christy Knoll in there. Um, she played at Marshall university. Um, I think ranks in the top 10 in every major statistical category at Marshall university. She's a Salem graduate, all time leading scorer in the girls program. So having wow. those three people, um, they're right across the hallway. Also, it wasn't necessarily just the boys office that had knowledge too. We also had success in basketball knowledge, you know, across all of our programs. So it was really nice being able to bounce ideas off of multiple people, not just, you know, having to rely on things on my own or just within our program. And that was nice. Sure. So um, as you bring that up, I have to mention, like, the three schools I've been to, uh, all three of them while I've been there have made runs to the state title, whether they won or attended. So when I was at Eastern, uh, the girls' program, super successful. Um, when I was in Salem with you, Coach Hickey, great program, make a state title run. Yeah. Um, of course, they didn't get it, but, man, still go there. It's, it's fantastic. And then this year being at uh, at Cordon Central and uh, getting to you know, uh, 
kind of peek in on Coach Conrad's uh, girls' practices, and he runs a tremendous program, and they made an incredible run in the state uh, title this year. So, um, yes, we're for good boys coaches, but then, you know, getting to peek into the practices at Eastern, the practices at Salem and, and, and Corden and see the girls' programs working there um, has been, you know, has been fantastic. And, you know, learning a lot, you know, like we've said, not just from the guys we're working under, but those guys across the hall that, that we know are having a ton of success has really, really helped. And any chance I get to, you know, kind of peek and listen in on their practices, I yeah. definitely take that opportunity. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting because, you know, the, the stuff that, we ran as the boys program. There were some things that the girls program was doing, um, especially on the defensive end, uh, yeah. that we would bring them in and we would ask questions. I know there was one day yeah. specifically um, at the end of our practice, we were getting ready for sectional prep um, at the end of one of the seasons. And we wanted to put in a new press look because we'd ran kind of the same kind of two basic presses all season and the thought was if we could go into sectional with something slightly different just to give the team a different look right. and something that they you know, haven't seen on film and they haven't scouted against. And right. so we brought the girls' coaches in and said, show us your press. Right. You run it as effectively as anybody. You tear teams up with it. Show it to us. Let's see how it's done. And so there was the beauty of that that you could also – there was the, the co-teaching – mentality so to speak of being able to bring in you know there wasn't a a selfish side of any of that between our program and their program it wasn't like it was us against them or a hierarchy of any sense Um, we were very willing to go show them stuff um, because we had we had some zone actions defensively that they liked that we ran and um I mean, again, you know, we like some of the press stuff that they did. So it was really nice being able to bounce those ideas off each other and have the two programs working that closely together, which I don't think is something you see very often. No. Uh, no, I mean, definitely not. I mean, and it, that's, that's a great benefit. I mean, you know, think about that, bouncing ideas off. You know, I, I listen to Coach Conrad, see things he does, and, and the way he simplifies things, but it's very encouraging and demanding, and that's something right. he does super well. And, you know, it's funny, you're talking about bouncing off ideas, and I'm sitting here thinking about those experiences I've had. You know, uh, <laughs> just this season, um, you know, with, with Coach Hinton, you know, like I said, I always go over to him after the games and, you know, ask questions and, you know, think about things. And, and he's throwing ideas at me, like, hey, you know, if we, you know, we ran this back when I was a Floyd Central, we would do this. And, and it's funny to hear because it's a great idea. It sounds amazing. And at yeah. the same time, I'm like, you know, I really wish I was running that with Pat Graham like you were, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> well, and you're talking about. <laughs> about the conversations you have with him where he goes back to, you know, the mid-70s and thinks about being frustrated by one of the plays that they ran or maybe a quarter that they played. The right. beauty of that is he didn't have a whole lot of instances where he was too frustrated. Yeah, I would say, with, I would say it's very it's very limited and it's in a much higher stakes game than, you know, my JV team against whatever it is. But it, and, and the thing that I love about him and, and I loved about those experiences is always willing to teach. Like you said, yeah. that not that mentality you've seen with those coaches you're working with and, and it's not selfish and, hey, I'm going to throw this at you and help you out. Or, you know, it being a junior varsity game and afterwards he's willing to sit there with me until the varsity game starts and go through everything I want to talk about. And then that's just – it's invaluable and that's what, you know, makes those people so successful. Well, and, you, and it's kind of – there's some beauty in certainly having a guy sitting next to you on the bench that's won 600-some-odd games. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been lucky to to play for and work for and work with, you know, two guys in particular that have got over 700 wins total um, yeah. for their careers. And, 
just the the conversations and the the tidbits of advice and the fact, like you said, that there's a humbleness yes. to people who have had that kind of success. When you think about guys who have won sectionals, particularly maybe not Floyd to a, to that degree, because Floyd obviously being a big school, they're fairly dominant during his time there. Yeah. Uh, you know, but when you think about winning a sectional, a place like Salem or Paoli or Crawford County, right. uh, you know, there's certainly the avenue or the opportunity to get a little bit big headed, I'm sure as a oh, coach, yeah. you know, and to kind of, you know, feel yourself a little bit. And we've been lucky in that regard to work at least with coaches who have had immense success, but are also very humble and yeah. kind and willing to sit down and have conversations and, and teach, like you said, which I think is the ultimate part of coaching is the teaching. It is hundred percent. It's most important. And as we're discussing this, I kind of want to use this a little bit as our segue here. Um, across the state right now, speaking of these great coaches and programs they've built, yeah, an interesting, an interesting kind of uh, thing developing right now across the state, and that is that there are a tremendous amount of coaching openings around the state, especially in some very, very big name programs. And like you and I were talking about leading up to this, what we wanted to discuss, uh, I think. If we're if we have you know the pick and fence podcast that's about Indiana high school basketball, right now Indiana high school basketball is is in this very interesting place where the programs and if you started listing out hey what do you think of the you know the best programs around the state or you know dream job places that a lot yeah. of coaches would look for that that's what's that's what's here right now and you know we're talking about being in Southern Indiana and if you look right now across Southern Indiana so uh, you know me being Harrison County you in Washington County. Our neighboring counties, there are seven positions open right now in our in our county, your county, and the neighboring one now. So, and I think that's just this really interesting situation. But along with our local area across the state, there's there's some interesting names that are that are being thrown around um, uh, in terms of programs being open and, and places that coaches are looking at. Yeah, and just looking at the list, there are 35 jobs currently open right now across the state of Indiana. And like wow. you said, it's it's not. In some cases, it's not just any ordinary job. Um, no. We're kind of at a, at a weird place, like you said. You know, is is basket is high school basketball in Indiana in flux, or is this just one of those odd times where we've had so many great coaches just kind of all of a sudden decide to get out at the same time? I know, you know, you think about Jack Kiefer leaving Lawrence North last year and yep. retiring after almost fifty years yep. in the game. Um, you've still got J.R. Holmes holding in strong at Bloomington Bloomington South. Yeah, um, I hope he gets to a thousand wins personally, and that's just a side note. But I would love to see him coach to a thousand yeah. wins if I he could too. get there. That I would be too. awesome. Um, yeah, but yeah, when we think about in our area and then just across the state, the, the programs that have had longtime, highly successful Hall of Fame type coaches retire right now, um, yeah. it's going to be interesting to see how things shake out. Do those programs move forward? in the same way that they have. Right. Um, do those programs go through a lull? Um, is there a fall off? Is there a drop off? Or do these programs go out and get a coach that matches the yeah. quality that they're coming off of? And do they continue to rise? Do they excel? It's The, the storylines are going to be very, very interesting come next November, and I cannot wait. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I saw a tweet the other day that said uh, – it said um, there, uh, 
there are high school jobs in Indiana right now that look a lot better than a lot of Division One openings. Like there's, <laughs> if if you're a college coach who may be you know not sure about what job you're taking, if you're on the market for one, you may you know jump down and look at some of these Indiana places because they're the appeal with some of these positions are. Um, I, I I can't imagine working in a better place and being in a better program. Right. Uh, are there some? Uh, what are the jobs right now? So. I know there's a handful that I'm thinking of. So if you're looking sure. at this list, what are some places that really stand out to you? If you're looking at like, wow, this is this is a big time Indiana program. This has been a powerhouse, or this is sort of that dream destination that I, I like. You and I both know there are coaches out there that are coveting these these spots. Well, I wanted to write down five. Was my, okay. I wanted to put down five programs? I wrote That's down I wrote down six because as okay. I'm as I'm looking at the list, I see the openings. I got to five, and then right below my fifth one was my sixth and I thought I, there's yeah. no way I can leave this program off just because of no. the history behind the program and it's bet you're you know it's apples to apples you know it's yeah, it one yeah. a and one b there's there's very little there's not much difference between these programs so um, as far as the jobs that are open that I would rank as the most coveted jobs sure. to go out and get um, in our area I put New Albany that's been a job or, or pro, I shouldn't say job, but that's been a program year in, year out that uh, we're talking is winning 15 games plus routinely. I know they had a little bit of a down year this year, uh, certainly an anomaly. It's not something that happens yeah. very often at New Albany. Uh, I think they'd ran off like eight sectionals in 10 years or something like that. Yes. Obviously, we all know who Romeo Langford is. Uh, yeah. But to have the, the multiple Indiana All-Stars that come out of that program, they they never are down for very long. So yeah. when you look at the historical success of that program, I would say New Albany in our area would be the number one job that people would be after. Uh, and that's, I, exactly, that's the number one uh, school I had on my list as well. New Albany, I think, is the pinnacle of Southern Indiana basketball. I mean, I really think that it is. Um, it, I've had some conversations with, with Coach Shannon and reached out to him and kind of asked for advice and, it's never really matched up to where we've had the, you know, our schedules have been able to really sit down and have long conversations. But you talk about another coach that's willing to sit down and talk with you, a guy that's won state championships, won over 600 games, and he's willing to, you know, yeah. talk to some JV coach that emailed him out of the blue. I mean, that's true humility and true. I mean, like, I just was like, hey, man, I'd love to have a conversation with you. And, you know, we never had the chance, but hopefully maybe now that he's retired, I can sit down and pick his brain for hours. But um, he he's just willing to say, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll sit down and talk to you. I'll, you know, I'll you know, tell you how it works. And, you know, he's, you know, tremendous in the program there. Um, and talking Langford, I got a quick shout out. My favorite high school player that I've personally got to witness in person, Braden Hobbs, um, when he was there at New Albany, yeah. that team that he ran was, and ran into Gordon Hayward's uh, Brownsburg team to miss a chance to maybe compete for another state championship. Yeah. But um, what Coach Shannon has done there and put New Albany in, and even before Coach Shannon, New Albany was top notch as well. But it's not just, the success on the court, but just the class of the program and, and kind of what the program stands for. Um, New Albany just really jumps out to me as one that I'm like, you know, that they're, I'm sure we're going to hear an interesting name, get that position. Yeah. And I, I'm sure to see great success from there because that's just what New Albany, you know, that's just the product they put out there. Yeah. When you think about the programs in our area, um, I know with you and I being at the 3A level, you know, Brownstown always comes to mind. They've dropped back down to 2A, but, um, as far as programs that are kind of like quintessential that you want to emulate, you know, Brownstown and New Albany are easily yeah. two that you look at. And I think I would throw Providence into that conversation at this point too. 
uh, uh, yeah, the programs that you want to try and, you know, make your program a carbon copy, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm interested to see who gets the new Albany job. Uh, there's always talent and yeah. that sectional is kind of a buzzsaw. That conference is very difficult, but they are, you know, easily the top dog year in, year out. They're always, they're typically always the favorite. So it'll be interesting to see who gets that job. Uh, For sure. But would certainly look for them to have a rebound year next year too. Also, agreed. Uh, yeah. Who else are you looking at? Who else? What, what are we? Um, well, I, yeah. going through the the positions, you know, the small schools around us. Obviously, they're open. We can talk about some maybe underrated jobs sure. across the state that may kind of fly under the radar as far as interest, but have some ch- ch- some chances to, uh, you know, get maybe give somebody a good launching pad for a coaching yeah. career too. Uh, but the amount of jobs and the quality jobs that are open in and around Indianapolis right now really surprised me. Uh, yeah. And I'll th- we can throw out a couple more here, but I put uh, Warren Central, yeah. uh, Lawrence Central. I listed Heritage Christian. Uh, yeah. They're at the 3A level, but they had an Indiana All-Star this year. Um, it's a private school. It's over there. Uh, just on the northeast side, right off uh, 465, kind of close by Lawrence North. But they always have talent. They always compete. Um, if they're not in the state championship game, they're making runs to regional. They typically dominate their sectional. Always have talent. Uh, I put Penn on my list yeah. up in the northern part of the state. Um, they've had some really good runs the last couple of years. I think they finished the year with two losses. This year, and at one point, I think we're ranked number one or number two in the state. They were up there with Cathedral, or not this year, obviously, with Ben Davis going undefeated. Um, but the last two years, Penn has been ranked in the top five. Um, yeah. And then I threw in my sixth one because I saw this one. I thought, they're like, I can't leave it off the list. I put Pike. You know, so, all yeah, of those yeah. jobs, like the entire MIC up there, the, the Metropolitan Conference, it's, you know, to have that many jobs in that conference in Indiana be open. It's like you said, if you're – if you're a coach, if you're an assistant coach at the Division One level, and you're weighing taking small school options, I would, you know, I would put those jobs with the talent that goes through those schools up there with yeah. a, with a small D one school any day of the week. Absolutely, I'm about to echo you because um, I have similar ones on my list. Uh, looking at Lawrence Central, Warren Central, Pike, and Penn, those are you know definitely you know. If I, if I, again, like you're saying, if I'm a college coach and I'm looking at something like that, I think that that, that piques my interest to be up there, to be in, you know, to be up there near Indy and that not just that, oh, well, it's, you know, a big school, it's in Indianapolis. It's that they are year in, year out competitors. It's yeah. not just, well, they're, they're a big school. So I'm, you know, I'm going to hop on and, you know, see what it's got. It's no, like you, every year it, there's proof that these schools are putting out there and it's so competitive up there and, uh, that like you said, the talent that comes through, it is shocking that at one time all of these schools up there, you know, we're seeing the turnover. Um, yeah. And it, and it's not for lack of success um, perennially from a lot of these places. It's it's just very interesting. This is all kind of happening at once. Well, and you I mean, you throw in, think about the uh, Perry Meridian job also yep. being open. Now you don't necessarily associate Perry Meridian with great success because of the sectional that they get stuck in. And the conference right. that they're in, but their head coach, Mark James, is one of the all-time winningest coaches in Indian high school basketball history, um, right. and has been in Indiana basketball forever. Uh, so the fact you look at, at some of the coaches, you know, you, you look at a Jim Shannon, um, 
you look at a Mark James at Perry Meridian, and you think about the uh, gosh, where's he at? Um, at Lawrence Central, Al Gooden at, at yeah. Lawrence Central. You know, guys that have been around and in the game forever. Um, you know, a Brent Chitty at Columbus East to have coaches with the longevity that these guys have had all getting out of the game at once is just crazy. Yeah, it is. It is, and, and it's it's interesting, and it makes me think. You know, are, are you know, there there are big names that are going to these schools? Are we going to hear about some you know up and comers who have maybe been on their staff and are getting their shot now? I'm very interested yeah. to see not only who gets it, but to see um, you know these guys that have been uh, kind of the the titans of Indiana high school basketball for yeah. the past several years, and to now see you know are, are, is uh, you know are we seeing a, a, a new a new wave of these guys? Are we going to mm-hmm. see these new coaches that that are going to you know, dominate for the next couple decades. And I, I really think that we are. I mean, those kind of schools aren't going to make mistakes. They're going to hire great people. Yeah. And I think we're going to see just, you know, a new a new trend of, of great coaches that are coming through the state. Um, so as we're talking about these top ones, are there a few schools that you feel like to go with these these big schools that we know everyone knows that they're going to put out this great product and be, you know, perennially successful? Are there a few schools that you feel like look like great spots that could have great success um, that have had success and maybe fly under the radar. Um, that that you they're standing out to you. Like if 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 you're a coach that's that's you know looking for a job and maybe you don't get that that Lawrence Central job, right. that pipe that pipe job, but there's a, a place where you could really build the program. Are there schools that are jumping out to you on this list? I wrote down three under the category of underrated jobs and yeah. sort of like you said, sort of flying under the radar opportunities. The first one is a big school. Um, yep. I put Elkhart. Down okay. as kind of a, a flying under the radar job, just because it's not the indie school, and for us, it's it's not New Albany. Um, you know, Elkhart's a ways away from where we're at. But again, to me, it's it's a pocket in the state where there's always talent, and right. to me, that job becomes very very intriguing and enticing, whether it be for a young coach who would be like us, or whether it be somebody who's a little bit more seasoned, you know, who's willing to go to a new place and work on building a program, those schools consolidated up there in 2021. Um, So they merged. You had Elkhart Memorial. You had another school. They finally merged. They consolidated just be Elkhart. Um, I think it was Elkhart Memorial and Elkhart Central, I think, were the two schools up there. So now it's just one high school. So when you think about that area being one of the more heavier populated areas, um, pretty decent size enrollment, and, you know, it's a place that Sean Kemp came from. Yeah. Um, for all intents and purposes up near Concord, uh, you certainly have a pocket in the state to produce talent. And I think it's a school, when you think about, anytime I, you talk about consolidating, and, you know, you and I have talked about that too, about what you could do if certain counties would bring their high schools together, the types of teams that you could put together, in a, you know, in a fictitious right. scenario. Uh but with right. with this area, you know, with a, a city the size of Elkhart actually doing that, um, to me, that's a, a very enticing place to go. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, and then uh, I, I wrote Lanesville and I wrote Southridge as my other two kind of under the radar, okay. underrated type jobs. And you and I have talked about uh, Lanesville and Southridge before. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and those are definitely interesting. And I think one of the things that – you know, I think about when I'm looking at some of these places is it's not just um, 
you know, do they have a lot of talent right now or what's their success in the past year or two? To me, it's like, do you see like where you can build something? I think right. that's, that's, that is what Indiana basketball to me is, is more about is these places where people go and build this program. Because like we're talking about New Albany and Lawrence Central and Pike and Warren and these places, you know, they're not places that it's, it's just because of the talent. You can have a lot of talent and, and be mediocre. I mean, these are places where people have been for years. We're talking about these coaches that are winning six and 700 and you're talking about, um, so, you know, we've got a guy knocking on the door of a thousand. They, <laughs> yeah. they built this from a ground, they built it from the ground up. They've been there for years. It is not something that they luck into town every year. They build it. Um, right. I, a couple of the ones I put is I also put Southridge. I think it's very, very interesting. Um, they had, um, an entering year this year. They were very competitive, a very good team. Um, they had um, their superintendent take the job over um, when I guess they really couldn't find um, someone that they wanted to take that job at that point. But a program where there's athletes and other sports where they're super successful. Southridge's football program is outstanding. They've got great baseball. They um, Fun fact about Southridge, they fi- they filmed the movie uh, A League of Their Own at the Southridge uh, baseball field. No kidding. Uh, makes, yeah, absolutely. I just watched that uh, movie last week, and I love that movie. Yeah, yeah, they filmed um, – uh, that that movie there, which is pretty pretty cool, fun fact, pretty fun Indiana fact there. But Southridge has top notch athletes and top notch programs. I mean, I think that's a place you can really build um, a tremendous program there. Um, another one is interesting, and I think it's under the radar because they've been really successful. But I don't know if they're talked about as much as some of the bigger programs on the state. Is Greensburg? Uh, I'm actually just writing stuff down about Greensburg right now as we speak because I left yes. them off my list. Uh, I think they're they. It's not like an under the radar. I, mean, I think it's under the radar, just because it may not be talked about as some of the other, as much as the other programs. Oh, it's but, it's just not a four A program. I think is the only reason why maybe you leave it off that list. Yeah, I mean they are. They have been top notch. They've won state titles. They've had great players come out of there. Um, it's sort of one where it's almost a. Are you nervous to follow the success that they've had? Because right, I mean they they've been a great program. Year in and year out for several years. I mean, I think Greensburg is up there with anybody. Um, an interesting one that I found too, and it's because uh, they had a coach for one year this year and then dropped out. Is South Decatur? Okay. And I I bring up South Decatur because they had kind of lightning in the bottle uh, like a couple years ago, uh, but I don't think that it's coincidence. I don't think that it was you know a one time thing. I think they clearly have the foundations there for a great program. But South Decatur a couple years ago was leading the state in scoring. Um, they were one of the national leaders in scoring in points per game. They yeah. had um, some players on their team who were nationally ranked in terms of their points per game. I mean, they're throwing down 90 and 100 points yeah. a game, and they were a force to be reckoned with. And yeah, they were they were the Phoenix Suns seven seconds or less. They played at an absolutely blistering pace because I remember being on staff at the high school over here when they were doing that. And, yes. you know, kind of seeing that pop up on the news and on our, you know, certain feeds across Indiana basketball talking about South Decatur and what they were doing offensively. Yeah, exactly. And that's, it's one that I've looked at in study when, you know, uh, an, in, an interesting benefit to the COVID year was a lot of basketball programs posted games on YouTube, yeah. streamed them. So you kind of get this ability to, you know, not necessarily like I'm scouting if they're not on our schedule, but to go and see, hey, here's something this coach does, and I, I want to know what they're doing to do something so well. And to if, if you have the time, please log on and watch some of those South Decatur games from a couple years ago. I mean, they are throwing down um, ridiculous numbers. They play it, 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 What it reminded me of is, and I wasn't there to see it, but the 
Loyola Marymount years with <laughs> Hank Gathers. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, and uh, Bo Kimball, then just breakneck speed, like you're saying, an amazing offense to watch. It's fun a team, but I think that that potential is there, and I think that program is great. Um, and the last one I want to mention is Wallasey. And the reason I mentioned Wallasey is in a very interesting area, um, an interesting, and, and the past couple of years have not had the success that I think um, you know, you would hope for they're hovering around 500. They're in an area that's pretty competitive. They're playing a lot of good schools. I mean, you look at like them, you have someone like central noble on your schedule. Who's, you know, been really, really good the past few years and having to guard Connor Siege, and I'm sure is not, um, the easiest thing <laughs> in the world, but they have some, some good schools that they have to go against and, and it's, and it's a tough area. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the Northern lakes conference is tough, but they, they are, I think it's an interesting program. Um, there's some interesting, and I don't want to get into much into rumor stuff. We won't do that, but there's interesting names that I've heard thrown around that might get that job. Yeah. Um, and I think there's, I think there's some, I think there's some success coming for Wallacey. And uh, I just wanted to throw that there. I really think that um, that's a program I think to maybe be on the lookout for. I think there's some success coming there for sure. Yeah. And, and to your, your Greensburg point, looking at some of their success, going back to 2009, Greensburg as a program has three regional championships, two semi-state championships, two state titles. They've won 11 sectionals since 2009. Uh, so wow. they're, since 2009, they've only lost in sectional four times. Uh, <laughs> and 2021 and 2022 were the only time they've lost back-to-back sectionals since 2009. So they've wow. it's the success up there uh, – yeah. certainly makes that job one that whoever comes into that role, because my understanding is they have talent coming up too. This is not a situation where uh, Coach Meyer leaves an empty cupboard by any means. Oh, uh, no. My my understanding is they bring just about everybody back next year. So yeah, it's not you. like you're going to re come in and have to rebuild a program. You're coming into a program that's certainly established. Um, Coach Meyer is one of the best in the state. And – I think whoever gets this job is hitting the ground running, so to speak. Like they're not, they're not going to have to stop. It's going to be come in and pick it up and roll with it. This is that college coach thing we were talking about here. This is that if you're, um, if you're that college co- uh, assistant or at a small college and looking to to maybe build something or improve your resume, this may be the spot where you can really see some special stuff happen. And, and it's been happening. I mean, like we're saying. Yeah, absolutely. All right, dude. Well, you know, we can probably sit here and talk about uh, Indiana high school basketball jobs all night and our thoughts and philosophies and and coaches and all that good stuff. But, you know, this past weekend there was also a couple of pretty big games that we can probably sit here and and discuss also. So your take on the Final Four, your take on the national champion, UConn um, championship game, what are are some of the thoughts that you have there? So, um, first of all, congrats to uh, UConn there on their – Fifth title since '99. Is that correct? That is um, the most by any school. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, in that time frame. In that time frame. Yeah, um, that's fantastic. Um, Fantastic run that they've had. That's that's outstanding. So just to talk Final Four first, um, I kind of want to talk that. Of course, Miami and UConn. uh, You know, UConn uh, obviously ends up winning that one. Not as much of an entertaining game from just a back and forth standpoint. Um, UConn kind of ran away with that one, but uh, I kind of want to talk uh, that 
uh, San Diego State and the Florida Atlantic game, uh, the finish there and kind of the game throughout, that is um, probably one of the best finishes. I think the best finish I've seen since Villanova um, over North Carolina a few years ago. Um, but that's one of the best shots that, you know, I think in terms of history, obviously. But since that Villanova game, I think that's the best shot I've seen in, in the tournament since then. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. They said in the, in the uh, broadcast after the shot goes in that that was the first – First time in Final Four history, a game winner had been hit when the team that made the shot was losing. So wow. every other every other game winner that we've seen, so going back even to the Villanova shot, and I guess, you know, as an Indiana fan, the key smart shot in 87, those games wow. were all tied. So that was the first time that the team trailing hit a game winner at the buzzer in that, final, in final Four history, which I yeah, thought was pretty a, cool. Yeah, that is very cool. Um, so I saw – to kind of piggyback on that with another stat, I'd seen that no team that's an eight seed or above, like anybody like eight, nine, ten, or you know, uh, beyond that, has ever won in the Final Four. I think I, that flashed up on my television screen. Okay. If I remember that correctly. Um, so the odds were in Florida Atlantic's favor there for quite some time uh, until that shot that they were going to be the you know being a nine seed, they were going to be the first one to do that. Um, uh, you know. Looking at that run that Florida Atlantic, ma- Atlantic makes there, um, even though they ended in a loss, pretty amazing run. Probably the best run I would say since since Butler um, back in the you know early uh, 2010s. Um, pretty fantastic. Um, Dusty May, you know, again we talked about him, a, a fellow Hoosier, getting a lot of national attention. Um, but besides that that great finish, uh, seeing Florida Atlantic and the way they played through that was. Was really awesome, and I, I even even know San Diego State made it to the championship. I kind of can't focus on anything other than you know how great FAU was. Yeah, one of the probably biggest surprise runs we've seen. Dusty May, shout out to him. Um, yeah, heck of a run, heck of a job. Like we talked about in, in episode one, you know their ability to play any type of game that's necessary. You know they go from playing, you know fast paced, you know beating Memphis beating Fairleigh Dickinson. Then they yeah. go into playing, you know, the arguably the most physical team in the tournament in Tennessee and yeah. knocking them off. So being able to play any style of basketball they needed to, I thought was awesome. You know, Dusty May gets a five-year extension with which he more deserve, you know, definitely deserves yeah. more so than, than anybody. Um, yeah. I, I read where their athletic program, basketball program, is now getting $10 million to renovate some things. So. Wow maybe their gym can seat more than his high school gym now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe they can add a few, t- <laughs> at least bring in some bleachers to sit in the corners, yeah. maybe add a few more seats. Set some chairs up. <laughs> Launch at Florida. So maybe they've got some lawn chairs they can go find, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, come in, get a little sun, get a little game. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but five, um, a five year extension to Boca Raton doesn't sound like a bad day either. I would take that deal for sure. Yeah. Not horrible. <laughs> Pretty good spot for Dusty. Uh, the the thing that keeps popping up on social media for uh, people in Indiana here is, you know, Dusty May got next at IU. That seems like there's a lot of people pushing that they think he, he would be, you know, the, the guy that follows Woodson. But um, outside of those kind of rumors and stuff, that that was a tremendous basketball game, even seeing Florida Atlantic fall. Um, SDS, uh, SDSU with a, an amazing finish. Um, that was one of the most exciting Final Four games I've seen in a couple of years. That was really fun. Yeah, and the the kid that hit the shot for San Diego State last season for the entire year, 
made two shots inside the three-point line. Inside the three-point line? Made wow. two shots all season inside the three-point line. Wow. And a, a pretty smooth pull-up. Very smooth pull-up. Did you see the, the, it, the, the still frame of how close he was to going out of bounds? Uh, no, I have not, but I've heard, um, and this is, uh, Lamont Butler, by the way, we're talking about it, uh, with the, the game winner there for San Diego State. No, I've not seen the still frame of that for sure. I knew that as I saw him dribbling, it felt like he was getting himself into a position he wasn't going to get it off. Um, and he just rose above him and knocked it down. I mean, it was a great play. Yeah, he was width of a finger wow. away from, from being out of bounds on that. And he put the brakes on, again, hit the, the crossover, the step back, pull up jump shot. Would be an all-time moment. I don't think that that's one that you're ever going to forget. Like you live, yeah. you know. I think you eat for free for a while after you hit a shot like that. Yeah, yeah, in the area for sure. There, he's definitely a celebrity there for quite a long time. Um, and onto the championship game here. Um, so we talked about UConn and they, and they beat Miami pretty handily. Um, I'm going to say this is probably the most dominant tournament run I've ever seen, or at least in. Yeah. Quite some I don't think I've seen a team dominate the way UConn when you're averaging 20 points, um, the 20 point margin of victory. Um, and you know, San Diego State made it a game there late. Um, I thought they were going to make a run and, and maybe make it uh, interesting there at the end. But I don't know if I've seen a team just flat dominate every round like this. Yeah, I don't necessarily want to make our podcast about gambling by any means, but uh... For the run of the tournament, like you said, it's maybe the most dominant run we've seen by one team through six games in a tournament. Certainly your lifetime, probably my lifetime. I don't know I've seen the team just be a buzzsaw for six games like this. But they covered the spread by double digits in every game but the national championship game. Wow. (laughs) That is – and by the national championship game – So they didn't didn't just cover the spread. Yeah. They covered the spread plus ten. Yeah, that's crazy. That's unbelievable. I don't think I've, I've seen a run like this. And I kind of want to discuss them a little bit. I know um, just a little bit where we're going to be discussing, you know, kind of in honor of our uh, of the Final Four here, our, our top five favorite college players. Yeah. Um, you know, to kind of go with this this college basketball theme here to, to you know, end the show. But um, I kind of want to discuss them a little bit and just get into a little bit of, you know, kind of basketball coaching talk yeah. here because they are as fun to watch as – any college team I've seen in several years. I know that, um, you know, I'm a fan of, of, you know, all kind of basketball styles. If it's successful, you know, it, it's, they're doing something right for sure. Offensively, defensively, whatever it is. And, you know, you and I talking about learning from these coaches and being students of the game. If something's successful to program, you know, it, you know, I, I my ears kind of turn up, you know, yeah. I, I want to know what's going on over there. Yeah. And you said something about Florida Atlantic and they just kind of played to the style or, you know, had to change their style throughout San Diego, or, uh, I'm sorry, UConn, whether it was against San Diego State or, or against Miami or anyone throughout the tournament, had their you know similar style, but one of the most complex and 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 you know diverse offenses that I've seen in college, especially in an era where we're seeing a lot more high ball screen, a lot more spread offense, a lot more perimeter based offenses. Um, they had one of the most diverse offenses I've ever seen, and you know, kind of the word that kept going through my mind was relentless. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, when I think about the Villanova teams from a couple of years ago, whether it was they're hitting three pointers or driving to the rim or posting up or getting cuts, it felt like when the ball got stopped, there was always another option. It was like, how how did they find that guy on the back cut or yeah. you know, the kick back out or you know, kick out to the perimeter and it's one extra pass for three. You know, it was that was that Villanova team. It just felt like it was that way, and that's what this team reminded me of. And almost like they took it to the next level. 
every time it felt like there was something that it, I never felt like they got stopped. It felt like they were stringing 10 possessions together where they're scoring every time. And it was from everywhere. Three-point shots, drives the basket, cuts, post-ups. I mean, they had what I would describe as a relentless offense. It was always hunting for a basket, and they always got what they wanted. Yeah, and, and UConn's kind of made its name not only on the, on the offensive end, but their their defense is something that they kind of prided themselves on all year. And I, You and I exchanged, exchanged text during most of the game, and we got to about – either the six or eight minute mark and I remember texting you because the one thing I wanted to watch between these two teams I thought there was a chance that San Diego State could shoot themselves into being competitive right um, and at least giving UConn some problems but what I wanted to see was which offense got stagnant first yeah and I remember shooting you the text as soon as I started to notice it because there were four or five possessions in a row um, and San Diego State was the first team that got stagnant. And I thought UConn's ball movement stayed consistent. Uh, they utilized the post when they needed to, but their guards were able to create things and get in the paint and make make shots easier. They were able to put themselves in positions to be able to catch and put themselves in the best position offensively, whether it was a catch and shoot or being able to catch and put the ball on the floor, and they were able to play in space. And I thought that San Diego State's offense was the first one that got stagnant and not necessarily to take anything away from San Diego State, but let's credit UConn's defense. Uh, yeah, because after I text you, you fired right back to me. San Diego State can't play in the paint. Yeah, and they can't get there. I mean, that was exactly, um, you know, my, my thought through all of this. Watching them, and yes, as, as much as I fell in love watching the ball movement and the player movement of their offense – the thing that kind of didn't get noticed, and it's oftentimes, it's like, you know, it's like what you're talking about with, you know, these coaches that we've learned from. Um, the the nuances that maybe don't always get seen. Yeah. Um, what I found to be super interesting was, you know, oftentimes when we think defense and we hear people talk about defense, um, we really think about block shots and steals and, and things like that, yeah. or, you know, and deflections watching them make them take the, the least efficient shot. And it strings several possessions where it stops, where you don't notice it. UConn would quietly gain this lead. It wasn't, you know, steals and constantly getting dunks in transition. It wasn't, you know, uh, a, a ton of shots blocked at the rim or, you know, turnovers consistently from, the, you know, the, the, their opponent. Right. They're keeping them out of the paint. They're making them take bad shots. They're securing the rebound, you know, the rebounds, just as important as anything else on defense. That just ends that defensive possession. Them not allowing second chances, them getting those stops, making them take those you know, pull-up mid-ranges, contested threes, almost, you know, the paint. Uh, scoring in the paint for any of these teams was almost non-existent. Yeah. Um, and to see them quietly gain the lead where all of a sudden you're like, you know, you guys got a twenty point lead, and it seemed like nothing. But it's because they're 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 stringing three, four, five stops in yeah. a row, and they're consistently taking efficient shots on the other end. Yeah, and it was it was just you know almost shocking that it was like oh I I, I didn't even notice that um that this this lead was happening. Well, and you know to to your point about stringing stops together, uh, you being the the analytical guy and breaking down numbers and looking at stats and things like that you we've talked this year a couple of times 
I'm going to have to steal your thunder. Uh, but we've there talked a, a few times this year about certain defensive strategies and statistics and things that if you can achieve during a game puts the the likelihood of a victory in your favor and shifts it in your direction. And, right. you know, when we talk about stringing three stops together, that's called a kill in basketball. And if you can have eight kills in a game, then I think your winning percentage is like 80 or 90%. Yeah, um, yeah. you're sending me that this year. And I thought that was really interesting. And just to UConn's point with the way they're able to play defense and string those stops together, you know, it's not like you're getting one stop and then giving up a bucket or getting two stops and then giving up two or three buckets in a row. You know, they're getting three or four stops consistently in a row over the course of a game. You know, so scoring against them is tough. And I'm looking at the shooting percentages. You know, UConn shoots 43% for the game, 23 of 53 San Diego State shoots 32% for the game, 19 of 59. Uh, they Each team makes 6-3. San Diego State has 12 turnovers to UConn's 13. Watching the game, it felt like that was the other way around and by a large margin. Um, UConn does out-rebound them 40-34. to 34, But San Diego State had more offensive rebounds, which I thought yeah. was interesting given UConn's kind of prowess on the glass. But yeah. – it was their ability to string consistent stops together. Like you said, forcing San Diego State into taking the toughest, most contested shot. Um, and one of the things that you can watch, and I would encourage basketball fans, whether you're watching a middle school game or whether you're watching an NBA game at the highest level of the sport, to kind of be able to determine which team has the most likely chance of winning uh, watch the defensive side of the ball and watch which team can guard their own man. Yes. Because I think we get lost in, oh, this team plays really good defense. And it, like you said, it's it's steals, getting deflections, uh, the block shots. But you've got to look at how you're playing defense and can you guard your own man without needing help. And the team that is able to do that the best is typically the team that's going to come out on top. Yeah, absolutely, and I think one of the things people don't realize is the best defenses aren't reactive, right? Like, you know, you have the ability to react, you're in good help position, but a team like UConn is proactive. They're forcing you to certain spots. They know the shots they want you to take, and, you know, you could be a team that, you know, you know every set play that's coming, right? And, okay, I can anticipate, anticipate, but if you're reacting to those certain things, um, you may get there a step late. Whereas watching UConn, I can tell, like, hey, I know what they're trying to force these guys. I know that they're not letting them get, get into the paint. And when they do, they're not leaving their feet. I mean, even their, their big guys, right. they're, they're glued to the floor. They've got their hands up. They're making them take fadeaway shots, not letting them get all the way to the rim. Um, you know, I, we, we mentioned them getting rebounds and you see more offensive rebounds. That's a credit to UConn's offense. When you're not getting a lot of offensive rebounds, that means you're making a lot of your shot, your first attempts. Yeah. Um, so to be that dominant on both ends of the floor, when you're getting, when you're getting three, four, five stops in a row, and you're scoring four out of every five trips because you're taking the best shot. I mean, those leads just came out of nowhere, um, and and happened you know kind of quietly. But to to go back to your point, being able to guard your own man and not just being able to hold your own, but to be able to execute that game plan of forcing guys where you want them to take those shots. 
Um, that to me is what stood out with, with UConn is you could tell on defense and, um, Coach Hurley was was talking about that throughout the tournament. His his more defensive focus. You could clearly see that they were prepared for everything, and not only just prepared uh, to see it, but prepared to force them into probably the the thing they wanted to do the least. Yeah, and you know, to I know we're talking about the title game, but even looking at FAU, you know, they were a team that I think had their success because they were able to guard their own. Yeah, you know, they never put their defense at a true disadvantage. And it took the best. It took the biggest shot of the tournament to beat them. It did, you yeah. know. Um, and it's not like they walked out. I think you know, outside of Fairleigh Dickinson, they're one of the smallest teams in the tournament um, as far as size wise. But because of their their guards' ability to guard their own and be able to lock a guy down without needing help, uh, they put themselves in a position to almost go play for a national title. So I know that's something that you and I certainly are keen on when we watch games, when we watch film, when we are in practice with our own teams and, and working with our guys is, uh, you know, working through drills that make things difficult, but trying to teach guys to be able to be able to guard a guy one-on-one without needing to have anybody help off. And I would encourage people listening, whether it be our students or, you know, just basketball fans in general, uh, When you're watching the game, watch with an watch with an eye that you are trying to learn something with. Don't just watch the game for the sake of watching guys dribble and put the ball on the floor. Watch things that you can pick up and that you can apply. Um, and I love watching the defensive side of the ball. It's the only reason why I played in high school um, was because I could play defense. Like I wasn't out there because they needed me to get twenty. I was out there because they needed me to lock somebody down. And uh, certainly enjoy watching that part of the game and that side of the, that side of the floor. And to me, the, the, like I said, you know, if your team can guard without needing help, you're more than likely going to win. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm glad you brought up that consecutive uh, stop stat because I, I was looking to pull that up and uh, look back at that conversation because it's something that I've really thought a lot about and watching UConn, I thought back to that when you mentioned it, you know, how many times are they getting it and, and their winning percentage is skyrocketing every single time they're stringing these together. Yeah. And, um, and it's also, you know, you said what could San Diego state mention this, could San Diego state shoot themselves into making a competitive ball game. And what I noticed throughout the tournament was because the, the game in the paint, it was so rare to be able to really get consecutive, um, you know, points in the paint against UConn. It seemed like teams were rushing themselves into trying to, to, um, shrink the gap and so you're taking quicker shots you've got people that are rushing it because you're seeing the time on the clock you're seeing the gap and you're trying to close it out so you're you're taking the shots that UConn's hoping that you'll take because you're rushing into it yeah no doubt and you know that's that's by design a lot of times is you know you sure. think about going in and, and scouting and putting your your plan together for a game and, and trying to execute that you know that's all by design you're trying to to force teams into certain areas on the floor um Gosh, I can't think of how many times you and I, either on the phone or even getting together and looking at film this year and breaking stuff down, talked about, you know, where do certain people want to score from? Where do certain guys like to get? How do they get to those spots? Where do they score from? And then how do you cut the floor into chunks to keep them out of those areas? And I thought UConn did an excellent job. Yeah, they did. They, they were the most fun team I've seen in the tournament since – 
those Villanova teams that I loved watching so much. And, you know, there have been some really fun teams that have won national championships, not to take anything away from any of those teams because they're, you know, really, really fun. You know, those Baylor teams as good as they were defensively and what oh, Virginia yeah. was. Um, but just both sides of the ball. It reminded me a lot of Villanova because that's what Villanova was when they made those two runs, uh, defensively being smothering and then having just this crazy efficient offense. And that's what UConn was, and they were. Yeah. I mean, I had a blast watching that, and it really, you know, came out of nowhere. Um, I think for a lot of people, because there was so much talk about these number one seats, and I mean, it clearly looks like there was an oversight in in terms of the where where everyone rated them. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, I thought it's interesting um, when you go when you look at the bracket initially. You know, the teams that win the national title, generally speaking, have an NBA backcourt. They've either got an NBA, they've got NBA point guard, or you know, both their guards are highly talented. And I thought UConn certainly has at least three NBA players on their roster. But when you look at their bench, Cam, they've got two of everything. So yeah, they do. it's they not do. like it's not like UConn goes to their bench and brings in their backup point guard or their backup two, and it's like, oh, well, I understand why this guy comes off the bench. You go, no, this guy should play starters minutes. Yeah. And they really do have two of everything. You look at when they took, you know, when you take Sonogu out, of their lineup, and they bring in the seven-footer off the bench. Yeah. They don't lose anything. No. And so when you, to me, moving forward, when I evaluate my bracket from here on out, I'm not only going to look at whose backcourt is most NBA-ready and has the most talent, but who has two players at each spot? You know, who has eight guys, nine guys, ten guys that can go play? So. Yeah, do they lose anything when they go to their bench? And I think another thing to look at is margin of win, I think, as well. If you're looking at teams like, um, you know, who are they playing on their schedule? Is it strong? And how much are they winning by when they win? Because looking at a team like UConn, you know, there are teams that are great who play other great teams. And, you know, it's this really tight margin to think that a team this good playing against teams, that it wasn't like it's a, it's a weak year. I mean, we've got nine seeds going to the final four and these yes. tremendous one seeds that get knocked off. That yeah. doesn't take away the value of the one seed. It shows me that there's a lot of depth in this tournament to watch UConn absolutely dominate start to finish. Um, you know, it makes me look at, you know, depth and as well, you know, how much are these teams winning by because are they going to bring that dominance, you know, come tournament time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this the, the parity across college basketball right now, and you and I can have an entire probably – we'll have to do a whole episode – on parity, NIL, transfer portal, and sure. our thoughts on all that. We can get into that in a different time. But, you know, usually you look at the teams in there as having, you know, the, the best players right. typically are making, you know, are a part of a deep run. And not to take anything away from UConn and their guys individually because they had three guys go for double figures and right. almost had three guys score 20 points apiece. But as far as the best players, the best players got knocked out. Yeah. Um, you know, Miami, Miami, yeah. Miami as a team deserved to be there. Miami as a team was better than the people that were put in front of them. UConn yeah. as a team was far more dominant than anybody that they, they played. Um, yeah. And you could say the same thing about FAU. We've talked about them at nauseum and their ability to play multiple ways. But they were better as a team than what was in front. It wasn't like they had one guy that dropped thirty-five. 
Right. You know, and was kind of the sole responsibility, the guy that put the team on his shoulders. Um, I don't think any of the, the final four teams really had that, so to speak. It was very much, like we said, parity and just having talent at all the positions, and which yeah. is, is kind of a beauty to see it at is. this point in the game. It is. When you have, you know, usage rates going up and, and you know, college basketball is all about who's the pro, who's the next pro, who's the next pro. When you look at these teams that, you know, are – you know, are full full of guys that you you have to look up when you're watching the game. I, I'm not sure who's on that roster. I certainly you know. I'm I, I'm certain that across the country, people weren't really familiar with um, everyone on Florida Atlantic uh, um, their roster. But you know, when you've got guys that you know are playing their role, and and, and it's the balls moving, and um, every night you have someone step up, and and collectively you're beating these teams. It, it's beautiful. The four the four teams that were in there were playing a beautiful brand of basketball, and I would have been excited to watch any of them. Oh, absolutely, and I think uh, just as a basketball fan, there was no – I don't have a rooting interest in the Final Four. When Indiana yeah. gets beat, I'm just hoping for good games. So, right. um, And I'm just – actually, at this point, knock on wood, happy they're in the tournament, I guess. Uh, yeah. You know, at least we're back, at, we're back to watching Indiana play in March in games right. that matter. So um, hopefully we can get back to a point where the games really matter. Yes. in March, and there's something legitimate on the line, not just, oh, hey, can we go make the Sweet 16? Yeah. Um, that's a whole different episode, too, by the way. Um, <laughs> we'll get into that. But, uh, gosh, I'm with you. I don't think I would have been upset of any of those four coming out on top. But after the first three rounds, it just it was, it seemed pretty clear that of the teams left, UConn was just head and shoulders above everybody else. Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, so as we're talking about teams, um, we're going to take a quick break and come back and discuss um, the individuals that we enjoyed the most um, in college basketball. We come back, Derek and I are going to discuss our top five favorite college basketball players of all time. All right, so um, discussing the tournament and, and discussing um, you know just college basketball as a whole and, and the enjoyment of, of the teams we watched uh, over the course of uh, this tournament – it kind of got me thinking, and that's why I wanted to bring it into to end the episode with this. I kind of started reminiscing about the the players I enjoyed the most, um, and kind of missing some of those players. And um, you know, even in the you know, kind of in the era of one and done, it's uh, upsetting sometimes. You watch some of these players that you enjoy so much, and they bounce. And I think we're kind of getting into a, a balanced era of that in college basketball, um, where we're getting guys that are staying for multiple years, and we're seeing some you know some good college careers again. But yeah. I started thinking about you know my, my favorite players and who I enjoyed the most, and so I wanted to bring this up to you. And, and so you kind of made your list, I made my list. You know, we're not ranking, we're not you know um, you know drafting. It's just the the players we really enjoyed the most um, in college basketball for the reason. So I have my five, you have your five, um, and I'd really like to discuss the players that we just you know loved watching the most. And it's not necessarily you know the best players we saw, but just our five favorite ones. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to throw my five at you. We can chit chat a little bit. I want to hear your five. Um, and we post these on our social media pages. I want to know your all's five as well. So when we get done with this and we post this, I would love to know on Twitter and on Instagram, the guys that you really enjoyed watching. The yeah. but without further ado, um, I'm going to throw out my, my top five here. Go so um, the five favorite players that, that I enjoyed watching the most in college basketball. Um, and I, I kind of have them ranked in terms of my favorites. So okay. I'm going to go five to one. Um, so number five on that list I have is uh, Russ Smith from University of Louisville. 
Um, I am. I was a huge Russ Smith fan. Being here in Southern Indiana, Louisville is a you know really popular um, you know college football and basketball around here. But Russ to me was so much fun because I haven't seen another player like him in college basketball. Um, he is one of the most fun I've ever seen. With this a crazy combination. One, you've got this undersized guard that wasn't super highly touted coming out of high school. Um, the speed that he had on the court. I mean, he was greased lightning on the basketball court. Um, the scoring. The pressure he could apply on offense and defense, uh, he was as, as fun as any player that, that I've ever seen um, and, and very, very unique in that way. Um, I honestly think Russ is kind of underrated at this point due to the, you know, the scandal issues at UofL. And, <laughs> um, you know, and, and the game is played a little differently um, now, but you know, he's had a, a pretty good professional career, not in the NBA, but Russ was so fun at UofL, and he was a player that I really embraced and loved watching because he just – he just brought a toughness and a, and a uniqueness to the game that you don't really see. He's not someone that you look at and think he looks like a top-notch basketball player just with the size and and, and that, that he brought. But, man, he was fun to watch. I, I, I loved Russ. Um, really enjoyed it. I miss watching him play the games because he was just such a fun, unique player. Yeah. Uh, and Russ Smith. Um, so, number four for me, I have Tyler Hansbrough. Okay. Psycho T. Psycho, <laughs> yeah, so Tyler um, – Tyler Hansborough, I think, is he's the most dominant college big man of my lifetime, I think. I don't think I've seen a, a big man in college completely and totally dominate like Tyler Hansborough. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about some of the big men now. No disrespect to current National Player of the Year, Zach Eady. Um, super fun player to watch. Um, I, I, I think a player like that, to, I think he gets dominated by someone like Tyler Hansborough. I mean, he is was physical. He was so intense. He just could put the team on his back. Um, I know when I was in junior high watching him, I, I wanted to be Tyler Hansborough. Like I wanted to drop step dunk over guys. I wanted to where I wanted. I, I wanted. It sounds weird, but like he wore that mask when he broke his nose against Duke. <laughs> yeah. Like I was like, man, I hope someone elbows me in the nose so I can have that Hansborough <laughs> mask. It just looked. It looked cool. It was more intimidating, and it just like added to his persona in college basketball. So Tyler Hansborough having a report is because I just. I was a monster on the court. He just yeah. he completely dominated, went and won a national championship. He was he was a guy I think people feared. I don't know if there are guys that walk into the walk into your gym in college basketball now that people just fear. I think right. there are I think there are big names, but yeah. I don't know if there's been a player since then that when they walk in, you, there there's a real fear when they step on the court. Right. I, mean, I think Hansborough intimidated. And yeah, I, I, I think that's that a fair statement. Yeah. You know, I, there are great, great players, but when, when he walked in, it was – you felt it, and I think you the other team felt it. So, I have Tyler Ford there. Okay. Uh, my next couple are some personal favorites, and these next two are not super, um, like, highly rated college basketball players in history. Like, they may kind of even be ones that some people have not heard of. But my third favorite I have is uh, Keelan Martin, and he was uh, at Butler okay. a few years ago. So, Keelan Martin is from uh, – Kentucky was from Louisville, and then he went to Butler um, and came there right after Brad Stevens left. And so he was kind of the first player, I think. And I was in college at this point, so I had seen a lot of – watched a lot of college basketball and stuff like that. But I think the first player that I watched his entire career and followed it really, really closely in this way, um, you know, when you had someone like Russ or Hansborough, like I mentioned before, I kind of, you know, got on the bandwagon when they had been established. Keelan was someone that I had heard about when he was getting recruited. Um, and so when he showed up on campus and I was really following Butler basketball a lot at that time and going to a lot of games, 
Um, Keelan was one that I watched, you know, in those like early preseason games that I went to, and I was like, I think this guy has something. And so I watched him when he first came there, and just watched him to develop uh, into one of the best scorers in college basketball at the time. Uh, I think I believe, and I have to check, and I and I hate that I don't know off the top of my head, but I, I'm he at one time was the uh, second all-time leading scorer at Butler when when he graduated. I'm not sure if he's been passed by Kamar Baldwin. I, I have to go look at that, but um, he finished his career as the second all-time leading scorer at Butler. Um, and what I love about him is every year they came back, and he was there for four years. He added something to his game. I mean, when he when he first came into the you know the gym, he was a great athlete. He was a good scorer, um, but it wasn't super diverse. And then. You know, he had this great mid-range pull-up game. And, you know, he'd pull up from about 15 feet. It was at the top of the key. Like, as a Butler fan, I knew it's coming. He's going to cross over. He's going to get to the pull-up. He's going to hit a shot. He had a great post-up game later on. And then, you know, his last year, the last two years, really, really in his last year, he had a, a lot of range. And uh, he's a tremendously fun G League player to watch now. Yeah. Uh, just watching pull-up all over the gym. But to watch a guy from his entire career and kind of like, I was in college at the exact same time. We were kind of matched up year for year in terms of, uh, being there, and so um, watching him develop over four years, and driving from you know down here to go up to watch Butler games just to watch him and get the early watch and warm up, um, seeing a guy add those skills and just get better and better um, was just so much fun, and I I loved Keelan at Butler. Yeah, um, and that brings me to number two is um, an- another Butler player. I'm really under the radar, not talked about a lot, but I think he's. He's one of the most, with the exception of number one here in a second, the, one of the most fun players I've got to watch, NBA or, or college, and that's uh, Roosevelt Jones. And I don't know okay. if you remember Roosevelt Jones at Butler, yeah. but um, Roosevelt Jones is the most unique and unorthodox basketball player I've ever seen. Okay. Like, it's not even close. He is so unique. And I'll tell you why. He looks like, he looks like a defensive end, or he looks like he is like an offensive guard. He's very broad, very strong. Um, you're, when you look at him, you would not quite be sure what position he plays on the basketball floor just okay. by his physique. It is, it's definitely like, you definitely think he's a lineman, um, because it's just a very unique physique out there. He did not shoot jump shots. He didn't have a jump shot when he was in college. He did not take jump shots. He, in the games, would shoot floaters and kind of scoop shots. He'd yeah. get in lane shoot floater. He'd get in and kind of shoot a scoop. And so I would go to these Butler games and go there earlier um, to watch them warm up and stuff. And of course, before games, you've got guys doing drills and then they're out there shooting on their own. Yeah, you know, guys are out there listening to music and you know jamming and they're taking jumpers. He's practicing floaters and scoops. Now, like just like you, you know, any player would come out there and and practice their form and shoot jump shot. You know, some guys get right in front of the rim and they're practicing their form. He gets right in front of the rim and he does a floater, does some scoops, practices it off the glass. He drives in like for however long they're out there to warm him up. He's shooting scoop shots and floaters around the rim. And I just thought that was just one of the most unique approaches. And he didn't really have a jump shot because his free throw form and he could knock down his free throws. But it was very, very quirky. And I know you guys can't see this, but it was from his chest and just kind of the flick of his wrist. And it hit the front of the rim every time. And it either hit the front of the rim and rolled in or bounced right off. And it was not pretty. It was not <laughs> a great approach. But the reason I loved him was because he was a Swiss Army Knight. He was your point right. guard. That team they had that last year that he was there was so much fun. Such a great Butler team. And he was your point guard. He was a forward. He was guarding a big. He was posting up and playing that role as a five. He played all five positions. He'd guard all five positions. He post up and penetrate. He was a great facilitator. He was a rebounder, and he'd run the break. 
Um, he is the toughest player I've ever watched. Like, he defined Butler basketball at that time. Um, he had a game-winning runner against Gonzaga. I don't know if you remember Butler hitting that. Yeah, I was going to ask if he was the one that hit that shot. Yeah, he got, got a steal and, you know, in Roosevelt Jones fashion, you know, shoots the, shoots the floater for the buzzer. He was as hard-nosed as it gets. I mean, what I loved is that he was so tough. Their last game when they got – his last game when they got knocked off in the tournament – I believe it was Virginia that they lost to. They were down and it looked like, you know, it was over for sure. And they kind of made a run towards the end to make it close and still lost strictly because he just put them on their back there for him. He got some steals, yeah. um, showed off some hops there late when he had a dunk in an NCAA tournament game. But Roosevelt was just the toughest and so much fun. And I know Butler fans are on. Yeah. Which brings me to number one. I know I can be kind of long-winded with these, but number one is I, I – I'm going to make this definitive and people that know me and talk basketball know this about me, but I will never love another college basketball player or a player probably more than I loved Doug McDermott. (laughs) Doug McDermott is absolutely my favorite. Like that's his senior year in college is my favorite season of basketball that I've ever watched. Um, And I kind of look at players like that too. Like not just, you know, who they are, but like the season or, or the era that they were in. Yeah. That last year, I I had heard about him. I had seen some things before, but he was in a smaller conference, and so you didn't get to see him on TV. Right. His senior year, Creighton gets bumped up to the Big East. And Butler had made the move to the Big East, so I was kind of following Butler at that time as well. And in those tournaments around Thanksgiving, he has a big game against San Diego State. And I'd heard about this, and they had thrown around some, like, Christian Leitner comparisons. You know, they, they'd kind of thrown that around with him. He had been a two-time All-American at that point. But then actually getting to see him on the big stage against better competition, and he just kind of exploded on the scene and exploded on the scene for me. Like, he could score in every way. I've never had more fun watching a basketball than that. He posted up. He had inside. He would pull up from three. He was, you know, I mean, the quickest shot to get off. He had that one-legged Dirk fadeaway yep. that he did in college. He hunted to score. Like, you, he's constantly moving. He has his hands up. He's stepping up into everything. Every time he caught it, it was going up, or it sure looked like he was going to get there. I've never seen someone, um, especially at the college level, just truly looking to create a shot and score as right. much as he He's the most fun player either. I did not miss a game his senior year at Creighton. And once I saw him in that tournament, I was turning on every time when they're on Fox Sports 1 because the Big East <laughs> yep. was there at the time. So to throw out some Doug McDermott stats really quick before I toss it over to you, he was a three-time All-American. He was a national player of the year his senior year. Uh, he ended his career fifth all-time, and I think he's been bumped down since then, but fifth all-time uh, on the all-time scoring list with 3,150 career points. He had three thousand. He's one of three players in college basketball history to score three thousand points and grab one thousand rebounds. Okay, which is outstanding. He made over a thousand field goals, and he set the NCAA record for scoring double digit in a hundred and thirty five games. Wow. Yes, I mean, I I think that he kind of becomes because it's sort of recent, and he hasn't had. The, a tremendous NBA career is a very solid NBA career, yeah. but that is kind of forgotten about, but he was the most dominant player in college basketball at that point. And absolutely yeah. the most, like I get it. I, it, every couple months I've got to go watch an old Creighton game or watch some college <laughs> highlights. Cause I just, 
I just reminisce about it. It was so much fun, man. As soon as that came on, I was rushing the TV. But that's my top five. Um, shout out to Dougie McBuckets. Yeah. He's a guy for sure. Um, what about you, Derek? What, what, what players did you enjoy? Well, tell Popovich to put Dougie McBuckets in sometime. Yeah, I, I'm going to see him get a, a few more shots. I, I always log on to YouTube and check out everywhere he's been. He got drafted by Chicago. I have a shirt in my still of uh, a Doug McDermott. Chicago Bulls shirt. He bounces to the to the Knicks and the OKC and the Mavericks. And when he was with the Pacers, he was fantastic. He and Sabonis were a great combo. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted him to stay there in Indiana. I liked going up and watching him. Uh, a lot, NBA games, you don't see a lot of people really excited to go watch Doug McDermott. But going to Indy when he was there, <laughs> I was a big-time uh, Doug McDermott stand for sure. But um, – yeah, being in San Antonio, I'd like to see Pop get on the rock a little more. Yeah, run sure. some sets, man. Come on, Pop. Yeah, for real. So, for my top five, I I just kind of looked at mine as far as uh, guys I've seen play, not necessarily in person, but people just guys that I've had a chance to watch on TV and, and see play. So, my top five, and in no particular order, and I definitely did not do this position-based. This is all, right. I think, I've – two forwards and three guards on here. So I didn't do it by any means by position. Uh, But first one I want to talk about as far as favorite players to to watch play the game is Calvert Chaney from Indiana, uh, from Evansville Harrison High School down there, and is the all-time leading scorer in not only Indiana history, but also Big Ten Conference history uh, at well over 2,000 points. And came to IU at a time – when they were kind of off the heels of that 87 championship, he comes in in 89-90 and as a freshman right away begins to kind of assert his dominance not only in at IU as far as being a starter but also across the Big Ten and kind of was obvious he was going to be a problem for four years. Yeah. And over the course of that time, they, they make final four runs. They don't win a national championship. Um, in 92, if Allen Henderson doesn't get hurt – I think they absolutely win the national title that year, uh, which would have been a heck of a game watching them. You know, I play. I think the, I think that would have been one of the UNLV teams uh, in '92. It was UNLV or Duke? I can't remember. I think they got beat by Duke in the final four and would have played UNLV. Uh, yeah, that's correct. But he became a, a player that could score from all three levels. Uh, he was one of the first guys at IU, other than Alford, to really kind of take advantage of the three-point line. Uh, also had that – he was Rip Hamilton before Rip Hamilton in the mid-range, and yeah. he was six 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 seven. So it was – you know, you couldn't necessarily deal with him, you know, in that pinch post area around the elbows because if he catches it off the move or off a down screen, catches it, he's going up lefty, so he's already a little bit awkward to defend. And his size could shoot over anybody in the league. Um, and then also had no problem putting you on a poster. So uh, certainly was one of the most entertain or is one of the most entertaining players to come through, come through Bloomington and is, you know, nothing but a, a winner too at that level, which certainly makes it more entertaining. Number two on my list, and I could probably save this guy for last, but we'll go ahead and talk about him. Um, the, Human highlight reel after Dominique Wilkins. The human highlight reel of my lifetime, for sure. Uh, Vince Carter out of North Carolina. And the reason, the main reason for this is as he's coming through Carolina, I'm in like that fourth, fifth grade, 
area. So everything that you want to watch on TV is all like highlights. And that was back when SportsCenter was good. And they actually showed highlights and had really cool segments and talked about sports and talked about games and all that stuff. And so I can remember either having a sick day at school and getting to watch the same SportsCenter hour-long show like three times in a row and having it memorized. But then I can also remember, you know, coming home and watching SportsCenter after dinner or knowing that there was a Carolina game on and wanting to watch it because Vince Carter was playing and you knew that there was going to be something special happen, whether it was him catching the ball in transition, getting to the rim and putting somebody on a poster, or whether it was that famous Carolina secondary break where he gets a backdoor lob off of a back screen and does something special. Uh, But people get lost in the fact that he was also a scorer. He didn't, he wasn't just, a guy that dunked over everybody. Um, you know, he, he was a serviceable shooter in college um, and has as many highlights to me on the defensive end as he does on the offensive end. But for me, Vince Carter is an easy player to put in the top five just because of what he was able to do and just how entertaining he was to watch. How Just athleticism times a, a million with that guy. I would like to have an ounce of the athletic ability that 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 guy does. Uh, Number three on my list is another Hoosier, Jared Jeffries. Uh, Graduated from Bloomington North High School, Indiana Mr. Basketball in the year 2000. And not only was he entertaining to watch, but for me this is a situation where he didn't have to go to Indiana. Uh, You know, he commits out of high school – He's on campus for two months, and Coach Knight gets fired. Yeah. And, you know, obviously Mike Davis steps into the role um, and does enough. I think not not only were there enough leaders on the team, but I think they respected Mike Davis enough to come together, and they didn't let that particular instance divide the team. I think, right. if anything, it united the team. And his freshman year, they kind of, you know, to, to go back to our under-the-radar under theme, were an under-the-radar team his freshman year and then make a pretty decent run in the NCAA tournament that year. Um, but then he absolutely had the option to go pro after his freshman year and, and honestly could have. And no one would have batted an eye or, or thought ill of him for sure because he had a great freshman season. But uh, comes back as a, as, a, as a sophomore. They make the, again, kind of surprise run to the Final Four. They play for a national championship. They lose to a very talented Maryland team, which had an all-NBA backcourt. Uh, most notably, they knock off the number one seeded Duke team in Lexington, in Rupp Arena. Uh, they give up the foul, Jason Williams bangs home the three plus the foul, misses the free throw for the four-point play to tie the game. Uh, A.J. Moye makes one of the greatest plays in Indiana basketball history, blocks Carlos Boozer, the ball game's over. Uh, I remember jumping up and down on my couch in that one when I was like a freshman or a sophomore in high school, losing my mind at home. Uh, But just the energy that that guy brought to Assembly Hall and brought to the game – there was one game in particular they they absolutely ran 
I think it was a top 10 Illinois team, ran them out of Assembly Hall. Um, I think it's still the single-game record for threes made for an Indiana team. Um, But just, for me, the fact that he didn't, he number one stayed at IU, he didn't have to after the whole Coach Knight incident and that whole deal, um, was committed. And then, to me, more than more than outplayed the hype. Like, he yeah. he certainly yeah. ex- exceeded it. Um, so that's – Jared Jeffries is on my list. Number – the fourth one I'm going to mention is J.J. Redick. I just – for love him or hate him, I think you probably have two perspectives on J.J. Redick as a college player. If you bleed Carolina blue, you're not going to want to hear this part of the podcast. Uh, but it has nothing to do with allegiances or anything like that. I just enjoyed watching J.J. Redick play basketball. Um, Reggie Miller is my all-time favorite player, him and Kobe Bryant. But J.J. Redick was probably the closest thing at the time. It was the end of Reggie Miller's career. But the way that they utilized J.J. Redick off of you know down screens, pin downs, baseline actions – um, reminded me a whole lot of how Reggie Miller played basketball. And he was also a guy that you knew he was going to get 20 shots a game, but there was nothing you could do to keep him from getting them. Um, so just incredibly fun to watch. Um, and I've told countless players, whether it be coaching middle school or high school, who have had issues with their jump shot, or want to know how to work on their form, and I just send them a J.J. Redick link. Like, I'll yeah. just go to YouTube, I'll find a video of J.J. Redick, and I will say, do this. Yeah. Whatever he's doing, watch this video, and do your best to do exactly what he's doing. Yeah. And I kind of leave it at that. To me, he's uh, he's in the conversation for one of the all-time best shooters. You know, Steph and, and Clay, I think, get that acknowledgement you throw in Ray Allen Reggie Miller but to me as far as um, all-time best shooters you know I I think he's got to be in the conversation and brings me to the fifth one and I'm going Jimmer Fredette out of BYU Um, anytime you have a song named after you when you're in college I think maybe you develop a little bit of a cult following but teach me how to Jimmer yeah that was awesome. Um, he was sort of because he came along the same time as Steph, and he was he was doing things that Steph did in the NBA. Jimmer was doing it in college, right? And Jimmer was that BYU team, you know, for for all intents and purposes. Uh, they certainly went as he went, but gosh, he they went pretty far because he was that good. Um, yes. He had nights where he just went absolutely bananas. And to me, the, the best thing about him was you didn't know. You had an idea he was probably going to get 30 or 35 somehow, but you didn't know how, so you had to watch. And he may get it because he may hit eight threes. He may get it because he hits 25 free throws and lives in the paint. And those eight threes may very well come off of the offense and come out of actions, or they may just all come out of him pulling from 30 feet and doing it on his own which there's still the video of them playing Florida in the tournament. And they're making a run to get back in the game, and he's in transition and pulls up almost from the hash for the coach's box and buries it. Um, Yeah. And so for me, guys like that 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 were just 
kind of highlight reels in their own right, and you knew that there was nothing the other team could do to really stop it. It was just a matter of how many points were they going to score. Yeah. Um, and guys that can just fill it up, yeah. uh, to me, are just it, – it's so much fun to watch. Yeah, uh, I agree. They play with, with a freedom, but they play with a passion and an enthusiasm. And just watching guys who love to play the game and are just really good at it, to me, is fun. Um, so that's my five. I've got Calvert Chaney, Vince Carter, Jared Jeffries, J.J. Redick, and then uh, I guess what we, what we call him the Chinese flamethrower now. Um, yeah, yeah, playing in the chi- <laughs> in the in the Chinese professional league, and he just tears it up over there. Jimmer somehow, absolutely. somehow, Jimmer couldn't necessarily hold on to the spot on, in the NBA, but has become one of the all-time greats over in Shanghai. Yeah. And as <laughs> well, they torched, have that, um, they have that thing every summer, TBT, the basketball yep. tournament, where those college put together, and he is like a legend in that tournament now too. I'm sure he plays in that. He'll play in that Ice Cube Big Three League at some point and be a superstar as well. But yeah, for sure. I'm pretty sure I, I saw um, years ago that he scored a thousand points in his senior year at BYU just in that one year, which is fantastic. But no, I agree. I agree with you. Just looking at those lists, it's those guys that play with a passion. It's those guys. There's nothing more fun than watching a guy that can really shoot the ball. Yeah. Um, and just those guys that you knew, you know, came out there and played to win and, and whatever their style was, and that. That's that's I think the beauty of college basketball is that. Yeah, for sure. ab- absolutely, absolutely. It's like you know we were talking about usage rates and and ball movement stuff like that, and that's why I really enjoy watching college basketball is because you don't necessarily watch one guy just dominate the ball like you do in the NBA. Yeah. Um, now in some cases, Jimmer, for instance, is that good, so does dominate the ball, but right. is the ball didn't necessarily stick either because there was a, there was as good a chance he was getting to the rim as there was that it was going up as soon as he crossed half court. Yeah, and that's you know that's <laughs> the thing about McDermott. I mean, yeah, he he sure you know dominated the ball, but he didn't have it in his hand very long. If it, as yes. soon as it touched, he was he was letting it go towards the rim for sure. Yeah, it's quantity of possessions, not necessarily quality of possessions. Yeah. <laughs> but when you can fill it up and you hit a you know a thousand shots in McDermott's in, you know case in your college career that certainly um no argument <laughs> yeah you're you're what's the, i don't argue with buckets yeah that's <laughs> right that's right that doesn't always apply to everyone but it does when you, it's in your nickname and they call you doug and buckets yeah you you've earned it for sure so um so with that we're going to be posting these um we would you know after you listen to the podcast you see us on twitter and instagram uh we want to know some of your favorites Comments on whether or not you like the guys on our list. Um, comments on you know w- what players that you really enjoyed. Maybe we missed some, and you know we'll we'll be excited to see those. But I'm uh, really excited to see your responses. Hope you enjoyed um, this episode. And uh, as always on the Pick and Fence podcast, don't get don't caught, caught watching, watching the paint, paint dry. dry.